Hello, Boss Ladies. I'm Holly Sexton, your host, along with Megan Stith. And welcome to the Boss Lady Coaching Podcast. Today, we're talking about May and what comes up in May, like my birthday. Are we not celebrating this week? I am. Uh, yay, 41. This month, uh, we acknowledge the Susan B. Anthony Amendment, which guaranteed women the right to vote. And so Megan and I are honored to speak with a very special guest. Dr. Mary P. Sheridan is with us today to talk about the history of women's voting and what plans are in store to celebrate and reflect that. Mary P., as she likes to be called by friends, and so we're all friends now, is an award-winning author. She's also a professor at the University of Louisville. <laughs> we're so happy to speak with you today. Welcome, Mary P., glad to have you on. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks so much. Or thanks for coming on our show. And Megan, thanks for having us in your uh, your your private room. If the kids burst in, we know what's up, right? I was going to say, I hope you can't hear the TV that I think they just put on kind of loud. If I need to go yell, let me know and I'll sneak <laughs> away. Well, and you're, you're good to go. So uh, Megan, before we get into it with Mary P, because we got to go deep today, I would love for you to share with everybody about your Women of Courage debut in the book and also what you've signed up for, which is a second and second. So, yeah. Oh, I don't know what I've signed up for. Um, <laughs> I'm really excited. The Women of Courage, um, the next volume comes out in August. So that is done, printed. I've gotten to see the first, um, my first copy of it, which is pretty surreal. So we'll have more details coming out on how that can be purchased. And I'm really excited about our event that hopefully we can still figure out a way to have as we get closer to the fall. Um, we're talking about doing a book signing with a lot of local women who have been featured, including Holly, too. So um, excited about that. And then, um, you know, the universe decided to make me practice what I preach and uh, had an opportunity to write a chapter on imposter syndrome um, for another book that's coming out also in August. Uh, and I'm laughing because that is there's great irony in that. Um, I did try to talk myself out of it mentally for a few minutes with very much imposter syndrome type thought, um, but said, you know, I've had some experience in overcoming those challenges and it's an issue that I know I still face and other women face, so why not? So spending now this time in a social isolation while uh, writing, I guess is the best thing we can do right now. So that's the, the next project on the horizon. Well, I'm so proud of you, and and I love how you said you didn't have time to think about it, and you didn't have time to process it or be afraid, and with imposter syndrome, go, I'm not an author. It's really hard. I have, like, tried to talk myself out of it a few times just since I have gotten started writing, because what seems like you know a lot about, it's a whole different ballgame when you suddenly are looking at how long things have to be and all of those requirements, but, uh, you know. We'll get it done, and I'm thankful for just making make quick decisions sometimes. When you know it's something that's going to terrify you to death, just decide to do it as fast as you can and then get to work. Well, I'd love to hear uh, Mary P. weigh in on that. I'm sure she hears that from her students frequently. So, Mary, how have you been doing during the pandemic and finishing up the semester at UofL with your students? Well, I just want to go back to something Megan said because there's a fabulous graduate student, and she is doing her master's thesis on imposter syndrome and she's talking about um what are ways that we can try to mitigate it so i think you never get over it i think you just come to accept that more people feel it and so you're just kind of joining a club as opposed to the only one there so i think there's something to to that so you've got a lot of company megan so yeah are you a kentuckian 
You don't sound like a Kentuckian. I'm not a Kentuckian. In fact, I was called a Yankee for the first time in my life when I moved to Louisville. Um, I'm from Chicago, uh, and I do believe it's the center of the universe. Uh, love Chicago. I am working really hard to speak more slowly. Um, but I've, people here have been lovely. I've, I've been here for eight years now. I don't think you ever really feel like a native. I think you have to be here like 40 years to feel like you're a local, but I feel very comfortable here and people have made me feel welcome. Fantastic. So uh, let's talk about your- I'm really freaking out because I have Chicago roots too, so. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, us Yankees can stick together and keep infiltrating. <laughs> Thank you. Tell us about your pursuit and what your doctorate is in. So my uh, doctorate is from Illinois, uh, University of Illinois at Urbana and it is in something called writing studies so i'm in the english department and there are three parts of it and everybody knows two and i'm the third so everyone knows um literature and they know creative writing and then there's this third area um and it's called a different thing in lots of places but it's really how people use reading and writing in their everyday lives um and composing even more so so some people might do rhetoric of particular areas professional writing medical rhetoric that sort of world I work what's happening in the community primarily. So my interests are really three areas. One has to do with uh, community engagement, one has to do with digital media, and one has to do with feminist methodologies. And I can usually get two of the three in any given project. I worked on those areas and then I was hired uh, to come to Louisville really for digital media work, um, really to help with the graduate students thinking through Aristotle is a famous quote, writing by um, any means necessary. And then Henry Jenkins, who's out at USC, has a famous revision of it, like by any media necessary. And it's really rethinking what does it mean to communicate today? Um, and how do, we, how do we do that? And so professional writing, for example, we used to have like long reports and that still sometimes happens. But entry level positions are not gonna be a long 20 page report to the boss. They're gonna be transmedia. How is a message that works on a blog, that works on a handout, that works, how does media, how does the communication work in different environments for different audiences? And how do we think through what might be persuasive? And so um, I'm really interested in, um, in those, in questions about community work in particular. So that's my area. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, I met you through Sherry Duffy and we hope to talk to her in July. We're trying to nail a date Good. there. Good. But um, you two work together on the Commission on the Status of Women. So would you tell us about that organization? Sure, that's an organization at the University of Louisville, but many organizations, many universities have them. And it's really trying to figure out what are patterns that might affect groups differently. So I think that some things they look at are what might be issues unique to um, women, although we've really been pushing back on that, not just women, but really thinking of that much more intersectionally. What are the, how do we look at systems and figure out who, who, who wins and who loses in those systems? So for example, there might be issues about, um, there, I know something that was recently they were working on, we're finding lactation rooms. There weren't any lactation rooms in most of the campus. And so if all the medical experts say women should be breastfeeding for the health of their children, yet we don't provide that resource. What if you're in a cubicle and you've got 12 people in your office? Like you're not gonna be pumping, you know? And so so just some practical things like that, as well as structural issues, looking at salary for people doing the exact same work in the exact same positions, what are salary inequities? How many people start out as an assistant professor as well as make it all the way up to um, a full professor? 
one thing the LGBTQ office we've been working with, we're really paying attention to people who might who might be transgender. How are how are we meeting their needs? I mean, from basic legal things like bathrooms to really, um, if University of Louisville wants to be what they have cardinal principles, a community of care, what does that look like? And and how do people experience the same rules perhaps differently? Because I think most people make rules from what they know. And often the people making the rules are the people in power. But for the people who aren't in power, they may face those rules very differently. And one engineer student explained this really well. She said, you know, a simple thing like when assignment is due. If an assignment's due at midnight and you have to be in a lab to do it, well, maybe women don't feel comfortable walking around campus alone at night. So that gives the male students in the class an extra six hours to work on that assignment every week than it does the female students. Can we just have the assignment do it like six or something? And that's just such an easy fix. And I think the professor probably was super happy with that fix. But so this is just a place for people who might are a category of, of workers and, and learners on campus. They might think about how is their experience working for them or not? And what might the university do to make it a more welcoming, equitable place for everybody? And I've seen a lot of that too, especially when it can it comes from uh, correspondence from uh, Neely Bendapudi. Um, yes. Inclusion, and and I appreciate that she was very open and honest about the incident that occurred on campus. Um, was it this semester or last semester? This semester. Yeah. Okay. Some literature was passed around in in a class uh, by one of the students, and there was an argument in there about free speech, but um, it was. Uh, something that was derogatory toward the, toward the LGBT community. And so I appreciated her transparency immediately. And if I got that wrong, correct me, but that's that's a very, very brief synopsis of, of what happened. But um, she opened up the conversation, she was honest about it, and also talked about ways um, that the organization could improve. Yeah, I think that was really helpful. And she had something that I thought was useful to talk about. She was criticized for not speaking out more quickly and then it came out she had pneumonia there was a reason for that but uh there was a concern about how quickly the university is actually addressing these needs and i think that concern is legitimate and she described something between a knowledge gap and an empathy gap that there may be a knowledge gap about what free speech laws we have to follow for example there was in 2019 the kentucky legislature passed some laws and university of louisville as a publicly funded institution has to abide by those rules. So some of this is really just legally, what are the legal requirements? But she said something that I think is important for us to think through is we need to do more than the bare minimum of the law. That if we were trying to actually create a community that in, makes everybody feel welcome and actually validates and valorizes diversity and inclusion, then we need to do more than the bare minimum. And what does that look like? And how do we foster that? And that's a much harder question. And I think that that's a really important question for, for all of us. I'm sure that's something that you guys talk about a lot in Boss Lady. There might be legal rules, but what makes something actually the spirit of what's intended? And how do we, and how do we balance multiple competing agendas? And, and how do we think through and navigate some of those issues? And so I think, that's, I think that's a really tricky issue. And I think I'm glad to see the university wrestling with it. And I'm glad to have people on campus calling the university to be better, you know, like let's, we can be better than what this has been. Let's figure out how. And I think people have done a really good job on that. I know Provost Bame, I'm on one of the committees. She's convened a couple of committees to look at the policies and what might we do besides the, the bylaws, but actually how can we foster these sorts of living out the mission of what does it mean to be a L 
student and faculty member um, in all of our practices. I think it's great. Agreed. And and it sounds like the Commission on the Status of Women also comes into play there as well. Yeah. Because we know yeah. a little bit about inequality. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Can you tell us a little bit about the Commission on the Status of Women and the event that you had planned um, for the centennial of the women's vote? So just by way of a little history, and I'm happy to go into as much or as little as you'd like, but so it's the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment with granted women's right to vote. But we all know that there were legal obstacles and then there were de facto obstacles. So really, it's also um, 45th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act, which was 1965. So although so we wanted to really pay attention to both of those things, because there has been a valorization about, well, look at all these rights women have had. But really, it was only white women that had it. It was in 65 before the Voting Rights Act, before many women of color had that. And and quite honestly, there have been all sorts of um of limitations on people's right to vote. So, I mean, I have just a couple of things here that I was thinking about. Um, there were just four, there were uh, people of Asian descent weren't allowed to vote for really until the middle of last century either when a lot of the immigration and naturalization laws changed. Um, Native Americans have had all sorts of difficulties with their voting rights. And so this was a chance for us to both educate on and celebrate the accomplishment of what we can do when we pull together and also to think through um, even in something like the 19th Amendment, there were winners and losers and white women won. And so how do we think through about what does it mean to be intersectional in our, in our thinking? And, and part of it was also to educate and to challenge us to think about what's our responsibility now. So now that we've had the right to vote, we want to know what work still has to happen and what work should we call ourselves to be doing. So what work still has to happen, I think about is who is able to speak and who's actually listening. So I'm super excited that we have um, more women in Congress than ever before. And I'm bummed that we're elated that it's 23%. Um, I mean, that's way better than it has been. But when I look at who are the leaders of, of the communities that matter to me, so my government, my religion. Um, I'm not seeing opportunities really for women, um, and I, or I haven't seen women be able to take those opportunities. So there's clearly a lot of work left to be done, but there's also a lot of work to be thinking about. And what, who other, what other people, what other groups of people are still excluded? So that I might have to do with voting issues. So just thinking about voting, it might be, what about incarceration issues? Um, how do we think? about who has their who gets their voting rights back and who doesn't there are a bunch of different categories but Kentucky is on the most extreme of the most limited about that um, there are other issues um, about thinking about uh, what IDs are required like in Kentucky you have to have certain IDs but all those offices are closed and only the government can issue them but we're gonna still pass a law that you have to have them well that's kind of a cycle that's a little tricky um, and so thinking about what are the structures in place that allow people to even express their opinion. So voting isn't necessarily my particular issue, though I happen to know about these things. I've really been thinking about that in my own work, um, and I'm trying to get people involved in my classes and in the type of research that I do. So for my classes, I do a lot of community engagement, and I taught a class called Digital Storytelling last spring. 
And in that, they, students had an assignment where they had to work with a community organization. So some people picked like Kentucky Refugee Ministries. Some people picked um, the Festival of Faiths. But a big group of students worked with the Fraser Museum on What's a Vote Worth, their exhibit. And the Fraser wanted to know what people, they wanted to know how to attract 18 to 24 year olds, both to voting and to the Fraser. And so that was super interesting. But as the students got involved, they discovered all sorts of other groups they wanted to talk about. And so things that I could never have imagined, but they talked a lot about um, students who don't yet have the right to vote, but how do we encourage them to vote? So somebody did the high schoolers and they particularly worked on the Kentucky Youth Assembly, KYA, and then Kentucky United Nations Association. How do we encourage people to get excited about voting? We talked about people who were excluded from voting, such as a lot of people with disabilities still find polling places difficult to navigate. Transgender people sometimes show up and they don't look like what the paper says they're supposed to look like and get turned away. So they really explored who gets turned away in voting in ways that I didn't really know much about. And they did lots of super interesting things. And then they picked topics that they cared about. So one person wanted to target students like her. She's in a sorority and she's like, what are the healthcare matters that we should be informed about and caring about? And why does a vote matter? Like what are the different policies? So she said about creating documents that would educate uh, women in her sorority and link that. So they did tons of interesting things. Um, so giving, so some of my work is providing opportunities for people to engage with communities inside and outside the academy to explore um, what does it might mean to make a world more socially just in their opinion. So that was a great, so that was a great, Students did such great projects for that, and they posted a bunch of them to the Fraser Museum. And I worked with Heather Gottlieb at the at the Fraser Museum. She was wonderful and super friendly and super helpful. So I give her a shout out for sure. <laughs> so uh, with the pandemic going on and the museum closed, is there any timeline of when the exhibit will be open so we can see it? It opened already, and their work is already up there. Um, and so, and I think there's a bunch of virtual stuff on that too. So I'm not exactly sure. So um, I think you and the Fraser is having all sorts of virtual exhibits, and and they're collecting actually on a totally different topic. They're collecting stories about people how they're surviving the pandemic. So they're really trying to be involved in what the community is interested in as well. Mm -hmm. Megan, do you have any questions or anything that you'd like to share? I would love to hear. What has surprised you the most about this work that you've been doing and in, in investing your career and your time in? Um, any, anything that you found surprising through all of this? I don't know if it's surprising, but one of the things that sustains me is how um, interesting people are um, and how they don't think they're interesting. And I find that mismatch, which is exactly the imposter syndrome, right? Um, I just find that so interesting. Um, and I'm going to give you a different example. So when I was hired, um, I was hired to do digital media, but I was really interested in community engagement. So I tried to do something. Uh, I founded and ran for many years something called the Digital Media Academy. And it was for rising sixth grade girls. And I picked sixth grade because that's the transition from elementary to middle school. And that's when studies show girls start dropping out of science and math. Um, and so I wanted to get that particular age group. So in the Digital Media Academy, we made it free for all students. And it was two weeks free camp and from three historically underperforming schools. So Cochran, Eckerson, and uh, Lincoln Elementary. Um, and there were 10 girls from each, or depending on the years, it was 
we worked right at around 22 students because that's as many computers as we had in our computer lab. So we had these girls come and my interest in that was really going back to the question you asked earlier, almost about the same as the issues about voting, but it's really about who feels, who is able to speak, who actually gets heard when they do, and how do we frame those debates? And I found that these girls had so many interesting insights, but they didn't think they had anything interesting to say. And so what we really did was we tried to create the opportunities for girls to be producers of digital media and not just consumers of it. So we didn't want them just to like use a filter that made them look blank, prettier, skinnier, whatever it was, you know, but rather they could be producers of of messages. So the first week they did a variety of projects and the second week they worked together on a, on a topic that they chose and they researched it and they interviewed it, they composed the music, they shot the film, they created uh, movies and then we had a pitch flick in the Chow Auditorium and in the library the Chow Auditorium is it's beautiful, it's this august room with wood panel and it's lovely and our president came and our dean came and Tons of people from the community came. People from their grammar schools came. Their teachers came. And it was packed. And then we had to meet the artist before and after. And they answered questions. And they were fantastic. And then the next year, because they heard of it, they were even better because been the group had been thinking about it. And I just find people so interesting. And the hardest part is figuring out how do we tap all of these, these different things to create a messy structure that works. For example, I got the Verizon $20,000 STEM grant and I got it and I wrote the grant application, but I did say, I'm like, you do know I'm an English teacher. You know, I'm like, um, but it was, so it was again an imposter syndrome. I didn't want to take the money if they didn't know. So I think just creating opportunities, but these opportunities have to be structured because why are there so few leaders? So much of the research says is because girls don't see role models. They don't have mentors, and um, and why is that? Where are the opportunities? Um, I, I've researched community organizations for decades, and I, I looked something up actually this morning in preparation for this, and there's a C, uh, an NBC report on granting organizations, and it's 1.6% of nonprofit money goes to girls and women's organizations, 1.6%. And that includes the Su Susan Komen Foundation, I mean like, the organizations that are probably taking up almost all of that money. If you show your values by what you support, well, that's pretty telling. Um, and so I don't think there are that many structured opportunities for girls to have these opportunities. And, I, and sometimes when problems seem so big and you don't know how to solve big things, working in your local community with other dedicated, interesting people is a great way to go. So, so that's, that's something, I don't know if it's surprising, but that's something that makes me super happy. I'm so glad you shared that because it shows such bravery and uh, for you to come out and say, hey, I got this $20,000 grant, but by the way, I'm not necessarily qualified. Yes, yes. So is this, and Megan and I know all about that. We've done things that we're not technically qualified to do and um, they've been very successful and supported thanks to our community and our friends and and those who want to see girls succeed so and there's something very exciting and I saw it on your face too and I echoed that there's something um, very exciting about seeing middle school girls mm -hmm. 
the light come on for the first time and for them to have representation, but for them also to use some critical thinking and for someone to ask them to speak with their own voice. And at that age, it's so difficult to discover your voice and, uh, and some never do. So I'm so happy that, that you were like, I'm into English, but we're going to do this STEM thing. <laughs> right. And we called it digital storytelling, right? So it was just like, so, but I just think that there are stories out there and, and we, and we Googled up. So we said, well, what do you want to be? And they said, we want to be a veterinarian. So then we Googled a veterinarian. They're just like, well, how come there's not a single veterinarian girl of color? Or somebody else said, I want to be a professional soccer player. And we Googled soccer players and they were almost all male soccer players, except for some like soft porn, so like scantily clad women holding a soccer ball. So if these are the mess, if Google is the answer to these girls' questions, what does it mean to be a girl is like white with perfect skin and straight teeth and this unbelievable body that nobody can achieve. So if this is who we tell girls are supposed to be, and if girls look at that and say, well, it's not me, then what are they supposed to do with that? And I think that the, what I wanted the camp to do was to say, well, that just means you need to create your own story. I'm like, there's a wide open space here and look around everyone in the room has to do the same thing. It's not like you're the outlier here. It's like, these are crazy stories. So we talked a lot about stories, about what are the stories out there and what do we know? And one of the things that we really wanted them to do is, is that we hope you take the harder math class when you're in middle school. Um, the NAACP had this fabulous um, commercial campaign decades ago, probably before your time, but not before my time, um, saying math is your civil right. And it was about inner city, and I think it might have been in Philadelphia, just saying all you students who think you're getting away with taking that, not taking hard math, means when you go to college, you can't be a doctor, and you can't be an architect, and you can't be an engineer, because you've already, are so far behind in math, it'll take you that many more years of college. So make math your civil right, and demand you take the hard math in middle school and high school. And that notion of perseverance and your worth being challenged, um, I think those are really important messages. And so that intersection, from that getting back to intersectionality in Kaswa of what are the systems that benefit some people and don't benefit others, those are like the stories we tell. Those are the math classes people get slotted into. Um, and there are some people on the commission of the status of women. I'm thinking right now of Ulfar Naswari. She's in computer engineering. Um, and she is this fantastic feminist mentor to men and women um, in computer engineering about what does it look like to have diverse representation and diverse perspectives on solving problems. And I think it changes the conversation. And I think everybody is better for it. I'm glad you used the, uh, the F word. You said the feminist word, and somebody told me a couple of weeks ago, they're like, I think boss lady coaching should really stay away from the word feminist because it's so politicized. And I was yeah. like, first of all, <laughs> done with censorship. <laughs> Second of all, it's not a political word to me. It just means that I support other women and that um, this, it means sameness. That's what it means to me. I'm really comfortable with being called a feminist, but I'm also really familiar with being dismissed because I'm comfortable with that label. I, I'm not sure. I somehow feel like Rush Limbaugh captured the airwaves and made 
feminist equal feminazi and made it seem and it's really tricky for me about i would really be curious as to what people are actually opposed to i think they're opposed to hype and they're opposed to hate and they're opposed to people getting special privileges and i would say well then you should be a feminist um that's all what Feminists believe too. Um, so I, I would really like to better understand, as opposed to just, um, I feel like sometimes it becomes such a polarizing conversation that I'm really comfortable with it. And I would be interested in having a conversation and not trying to convert that person and not having that person try to convert me, but just trying to understand what actually is so damning about that idea. Um, and for me as a feminist, I feel like that means I really need to attend to all sorts of injustices and, and, and all sorts of people like, how are the structures and who wins and who loses and, and how does that work out? I, I definitely don't think people should be getting all these extra perks. I just wonder what's an extra perk and, and what, how did that come about? And what are the invisible histories that might show there might be perks people might not be aware of? And so I'm very comfortable with feminist, but I do think, I did this study a long time ago and I was just, I did a generational study, just one interview with people from 20 in their eighties. And I wanted to know, could you be a Catholic feminist? And people, um, when there, there was a generational divide that people who are older will say, well, I'm, I'm a feminist, but I'm not really Catholic. I really struggle with patriarchy and blah, blah, blah. And then the, but they would say, but I could abide by that term. And then the younger people who also said I could abide by that term said, well, I'm a Catholic, but I'm not really a feminist. So it was interesting that people had very strong ideas and it, and it broke at a certain age range and everyone under had one opinion and everyone over had another opinion. And it was a very small sample. It is not like statistically relevant, but I did find that very interesting. I'm not sure when issues of, um, I don't know what you want, like liberal feminism would be equity and inclusion. Like, I didn't know, I don't know when that became such a bad thing. Um, so I guess I would like to better understand why so many people are opposed to it. But I agree with your, this person who mentioned to you, many people are. Um, and I understand if they take Rush Limbaugh's definition, I just don't know why they would take that definition and not look at historical definitions. Like I, I just am confused as to what that, term means for them. And, mm -hmm. and I would genuinely, we don't have to agree, but I, I sometimes I just, I don't understand why there's such dismissal or hatred or venom around that term. But I, but so I, I say it comfortably knowing the costs. Thank you for taking time to address that question. Uh, I've really been mulling it over ever since. And, and I think it says a lot about our climate and the polarization and language and how it can make a, a big difference. Megan, when you and I first started talking about some events that we were going to work on for middle school girls, we stayed away from the word empowerment. So Megan, would you touch on empowerment and, and why you were irked by it? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think it's, um, I'm not typically somebody who gets ultra sensitive about language. I, I see why it's important, but I tend to be really pragmatic in like, I'm, I want to worry about what we're going to do. I, I tend to be like, I don't care what you call me. I'm just going to be over here doing my thing and try not to worry about some of the terminology as much. But uh, I think empowerment is something I, 
I've also struggled with, um, I did grow up listening to Rush Limbaugh on the radio every day. So I heard the word feminazi before I knew what a feminist was. Um, so I, I've shared, um, you know, concerns about why this is such a bad thing to be considered. Um, now that I am proud to be a feminist, even though I understand that's, um, that word means different things to different people. And I think um, I've struggled similarly with the word empowerment just because of the connotation that that has. Uh, we are going to give you power. We're going to give you something that you inherently don't have without us. So I haven't come up with a better way to describe things sometimes. And, and I think we default to that maybe because we don't have the right language to talk about helping people tap into potential that they have. It's just helping them go through the develop new habits or go through those systems that maybe are working against them to help them tap into that potential. So I've, I've just struggled with that because I think we need to be clear that women have power in and of themselves. And it's not something that I know that I can impart to them or give them. It's really about unleashing the inherent value that they already just my two cents on a soapbox today. <laughs> and I don't know if that's you know, the right way to look at it, but that's just something um, I've read some some articles and things about it. And it just it's interesting. The more you think about these things, the more you do catch yourself when you're speaking or when you're using language, um, trying to avoid you know the unintended implications that can come with something that we hear all the time. I mean, women's empowerment's all over the place. Agreed. So, very you know commonly accepted term and um just what like we had that we could describe differently i think that happens i think that's part of like my concern about feminism actually is so opposite of most people's concern about feminism but it really has been how it's often been exclusionary it's uh, it's often been a middle-class white feminism and how that's been exclusionary to um people who are, feel non-binary for people who um have all sorts of race issues, all sorts of class issues. It's been kind of, in some ways, it's been a more of elitist uh, um, project. And so it's interesting that so much of what I've been thinking about with feminism is how do we make this more inclusive? But I know that's like the op that is just not, when I hear people saying, I have a problem with feminism, I know it's not that reason. <laughs> you know, I know, it's, I know it's a different reason. I'm like, I, I do too, but I think we're not going to agree on why. Yes. Yeah, so. <laughs> it's so divisive sure. where you say, I am this. Yes, you are not. I yeah, I don't. I'm thinking as a practice. I'm like thinking, oh, as a feminist, I need to listen more. And I feel like the person's going to say, all you're going to do is yell at me. I'm like, that's so funny because the exact thing I'm thinking is the opposite. That I need to listen more, you know. And so I need to understand different perspectives better, and I need to follow more than I need to lead. I'm like, but I'm pretty sure I'm not going to follow you, you know. So um, it's trying to figure that that balance out. It it makes me feel that they think they have me all figured out in a way that it, it, I'm just like, wow, I think you really don't have any idea. Well, when we're divided, we can't talk to each other and share ideas and ask questions. So, right. Uh, political <laughs> tend to have power, which means, you know, it's, it's a good thing, I guess, in a way when something does become politicized because it means you're onto something probably. Yeah. Yes. What we know as feminists to be female and white. So can we take that back around to Susan B. Anthony? For those who aren't familiar with her story, can you tell us a little bit of history? I'm going to start actually just a little before her because everyone conflates her with a couple of people because 
It was a long time ago, and could people conflate all sorts of people a hundred years apart together. So, um, so there was a big convention in 1848, way long ago, about people trying to figure out. They said, "Look at the Constitution. Look at all these things that women don't have. You know, women can't speak in public. They can't keep their own wages. They can't uh, if they get divorced, they have no right to their their children. Like all of these things that if all if all people are supposed to have these rights." Why don't we? And it wasn't only women. There were a bunch of women for sure, but there were also men, including Frederick Douglass. Um, and it was in the middle of that century, they were really abolitionists and uh, women's rights were all together because they were talking about freedom and suffrage for everybody. You know, it wasn't just a women's issue. It was like, if, if we're going to be a country that says all people have these rights, well, then all people should have these rights. And all people include people of color. They include women. They include so it was a much more that idea was there. Um, but after the um, Civil War, the there were there were several amendments, 14, 15, 16, all those about um, giving black men the right to vote, and that was a really difficult turning point because it seemed as if you couldn't have all people. It was only men, or it was women. And people were pitted against each other. It had to be one or the other. And so many uh, suffragists, the stories we know are often white suffragists, but there were many African-American suffragists as well. And in that moment, it was a really tricky situation. Like, do black suffragists say, didn't work against men getting the vote because they want the women to get the vote? Or they try to go for everything? Or, or how does it work through? And there were some, uh, some real tensions there in the fault lines. It was difficult. Um, now, black men got the right to vote, or at least in theory, they were, according to the Constitution, they got the right to vote. In practice, of course, we know that's not how that went. Um, but those, and then, and then I think that women felt very much, uh, they had done so much in the Civil War to be considered very viable parts of the country and then did not get the right to vote was seemed like a real slap in the face by the government. Um, that when we need you, we can call you up, we can do all these things, but you still can't keep your own money or, you know, all those basic rights, um, that uh, rights of citizenship. Um, and that notion of citizenship was what propelled Susan B. Anthony and that wave uh, of the movement to, and that became the movement that, um, and then after World War One and during World War One, people were saying, once again, women are stepping up, but they'd learned the lesson from the Civil War and they really protested hard Woodrow Wilson to get this right to vote uh, is something that that was instrumental to what they were doing. Um, and they did. And so women got the right to vote. Um, and then that was in the early, that was passed in 1919 and then became law in 1920. Those fault lines about race and class, that those continued. Now class was always in it for men, you know, it was landowning men generally who could vote. And so class has always been in there and then race has always been excluded too. So it was really a very small group of all men are created equals, really just a small group. And it's been expanding, but Sometimes they've been allies. Sometimes these groups have been allies. Sometimes they've been pitted against each other in ways that I think the abolitionists and the suffrage movement showed that they were natural allies and they worked hard together, but they just couldn't fight all those battles at once. And um, and those were some of the power structures that came along. And so, so Drona Truth is a kind of a famous person in this, and she has a really famous speech. And that was um, a few years after that, 1848. And this was saying, she was saying, no, suffrage and women's rights can be tied together. So there was an argument saying, oh, well, women are too dainty and they, they're, they're the, 
they're the um, vessels that we need to protect. We couldn't possibly have them have the, it'd be too much of a burden for them to vote and things like that. And she gave this fantastic speech about, um, and she was a big woman. She gave this fantastic speech about how she's worked the land, how she's worked more than most men. And she showed like her bare arm showed how strong she was. And she's like, and ain't I a woman, you know? And so just saying these are completely specious arguments. Women are fully capable of handling this responsibility. And so there were many famous women who were trying to unite um, suffrage and abolition. So before the Civil War, a lot of uh, some of the famous people might have been Quakers. Um, and then afterwards, the, the list goes on and on. Frederick Douglass being one of the famous men. But there were a lot, many famous people who were trying to talk about this as an issue of of actually living what we say we believe in our constitution, that all people are created equal, all men are created equal. And so, and what would that look like? And so Susan B. Anthony was in the later wave. She was the one that the um, amendment was named after because she was in the closer to the 1920 um, part of it. Um, and so uh, a lot of people doing really radical things um, because following the rules meant they were never going to get anywhere or going to get anything because the rules benefited those in power and not those who were looking for their rights. So Susan B. Anthony was one of those first wave suffragists that mm -hmm. we talk about. I'm so glad that you mentioned Sorting Her Truth, too, and, and Ain't I a Woman, because women were perceived to be delicate, et cetera, et cetera, and, not, and, and it would be too much of a stress for us to make the decision yeah. who to vote for. Um, that was tied in as well with the dogma of, well, women are inherently good. Yes. And so women as inherently good were not in a position to be involved in politics at all. And so, or like, why would you want an inherently good person to vote? <laughs> I'm like, I think those are the people we want voting. Well, I think what stands out to me too is, you know, it's a hundred years and that's something that's worth celebrating, but really in the green scheme of things, that's not that long ago. No. <laughs> I think such short attention span sometimes where we forget like just because it wasn't you that had to go through that struggle personally that you know it's not a responsibility that you have to continue that conversation and, and that you know quest for equality and, and I think it's even just thinking back to like my earliest recollections of what like a career woman looked like it was Mary Tyler Moore it was yeah. what TV showed as now it would not fly and yeah. thankfully so um but like that was when i was a kid that's you know i think we've, we've just forgotten fairly quickly how far we've come and there's still a lot of work left to do but this isn't like a thousand years ago yeah. <laughs> this is like our parents and um some of our own experiences that these stereotypes are formed on and, and you know 100 years is great progress but can't forget that that was just like yesterday, practically, that all of these challenges were a very real part of our, our history. Or That's a great point. Even closer to the Voting Rights Act. So I have a friend who teaches at the University of Alabama, and she was can't, she was trying to get a part of some voter registration to get people to vote. And when she would knock on doors, she couldn't believe how many people registered in the mid-60s. Uh, that's because they were finally able to vote. I mean, these are people she's meeting regularly as she's canvassing that just in that they they've just had the right to vote they they grew up not having the right to vote and how important it is for those of us who have had it for a hundred years to keep fighting because i think just because we have the right to vote does not mean our voices are heard and i think again who is in leadership 
whose voices get to be, who's, who do we see on the news? Open the sports page. I haven't read the paper today. I am telling you, like, where do you see women represented in the news, in government, in religion? I, just, I think it's something to attend to. But, so I don't want to dismiss, dismiss women's issues, but I also want to really highlight the issues of race here about the Voting Rights Act was 1965. So many people were just able to vote then. And, and that means who are not able to vote now. And I was reading something about um, what's happening on in, uh, for Native Americans in the Southwest and how their votes are being suppressed because they don't have addresses because they live at certain corners. They don't actually have addresses the way you need to have for some IDs to have official IDs. And like how many obstacles that they've put on so much of the registration was online and like 40% of people registered to vote online, but it was like 5% for native Americans because they don't have internet in that part of the reservation. Yes. And just how many structures are working against people today to vote. So what are the stated structures that allow your voice to be heard or not? And what are the unstated issues? And I think now those of us who have some of those rights, really need to pay attention to educate ourselves and to listen to those that don't and think about, well, why is that? And if people don't vote, well, why is that? And that was something I thought about in that camp, like, well, maybe people just aren't asked if their opinion matters, or maybe they spent their entire lives being told that their opinion doesn't matter. I mean, like, what are the other instructors? So I think there are so many ways. It doesn't only have to be about voting, although it's a wonderful opportunity to talk about these things. But whatever way makes sense to you, what issues you care about. I'm in education, so I care about community and, and education partnerships, like all those sorts of issues. But whatever your listeners care about, I'm people are interesting and they have lots of things they want to pursue. And so how do we try to create those structures that allow people to, to have their voices heard? So I, I think that's a really... For me, that's one of the enduring questions about this issue of the vote is who gets their voices heard and who gets their voices listened to. Um, I think those are different questions. Thank you for expressing that. I think I'll be a little more uh, empathetic when it when I see that low voter turnout. Um, there's things behind that that I may not be aware of. Everything from transportation to awareness. Thank you so much for your time today. And uh, thank you. <laughs> we we're not one of those great. <laughs> you guys do such a great thing. I love the title of this, and I love your program. Thanks so much for doing what you do. Thank you. Well, we're pretty passionate about it, and you know the irony of it is Megan has two sons, and I have sons. We're raising boys. I have I, I grew into the really inside. <laughs> but you know, but I mean, feminism isn't only just for women. It's about talking about social. It's a, it's just a term for social justice, you know. And so I, I think that social justice, paying attention to certain factors. So I think I think everybody wins. Well, happy one hundredth. Thank you. You too. <laughs> And and take care of yourself. And uh, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you. Bye-bye.